We are continuing our series in Colossians. This, is, uh, this morning we'll look at chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. The title of this sermon, A Brief Theology of Jesus, because um, I have 30 minutes and there's a lot in this passage. So we'll do a brief, we'll do 30 minutes on theology of Jesus. Just to remind you of where we've been, this is a letter from Paul. He's in prison. He didn't plant this church in Colossae, he, but he uh, was their, their apostle. And so he's writing them a letter of encouragement. Something I haven't told you is there is a heresy. You know, a lot of his letters are written partly in responses to heresies. Uh, there is something in Colossae. We aren't sure exactly what's going on, but Paul is just giving them a heads up in this letter uh, that their thinking needs to be right, and so, uh, in, in addition to other things. And so he's greeted them. We talked about his greeting. Uh, we talked about um, his being thankful for the gospel's work. Um, a few weeks ago, we talked about the renewing of the mind. That, but Paul, he's praying for them to be filled with the Spirit, that, the, that, that their minds would be renewed. And he ends that passage by saying, He has delivered, delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. And then he goes into this passage, which is just a really compact, probably a hymn that he's composed. Some scholars think others composed, but most would agree that he wrote this uh, for this letter. And it just, it, it's a perfect way to learn about theology about Jesus. So here's my question for you. You're walking down the street, and Jay Leno or someone like that walks up with the microphone and says, what's your theology of Jesus? What do you say? Like, you're on the spot, you know? You know, people are like, who's the uh, current vice president? I don't know, you know? You always wonder, like, how do these people not know these answers? And I, I don't know, maybe they're teasing, but um, hopefully we could answer about Jesus, right? We could say some things that make sense that aren't heretical. Um, so that's partly our goal this morning, but our true goal is that it would not just be in your head, but our knowledge of Jesus would begin to shape our heart and our lives. So let's read this together, starting in verse 15. He, referring to Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is the word of our Lord. Let us pray. Jesus, thank you that you are the head of your church, that we are connected to you. Thank you that you've given us not only this scripture, but your spirit to, to illumine the scripture to our souls. And I pray this morning that we would better understand you and that our minds would continue to be renewed, that we would further um, apprehend you and all of your beauty and all your glory and all your attributes, and that would stir our affections toward you and toward others. Amen. Everybody in this room is familiar with the bracelet, 
WWJD, right? I think it was in the 90s. That might have actually been, I did a little research I couldn't find. That might have been like the very first bracelet. So someone do that research and let me know. Like, when did bracelets become popular? WWJD, what would Jesus do, right? How many of you all had one of those bracelets? Does anyone have one now? Come on. Okay, how many of you ever had one of those bracelets? Come on, I don't believe that. That's it? Okay, what would Jesus do? And it's a great idea. Um, you know, you wear the bracelet, you're in a situation, you kind of realize, oh, I'm still a Christian. And then you, and you ask the question, what would Jesus do right now versus what do I feel like doing right now? Something like that. And it, it's great. Um, I'm not trying, I know I'm being a little bit funny, but um, what I like about the scriptures, what we try to present here is certainly we want to know what to do in situations, but we, we want to come out of what is true, like what's real. And Paul, in this letter, follows that pattern. He's, he's writing a letter about heresy and, and problems in general, and yet he's spending all this time on theology and doctrine and truths because he knows that only when you understand what is true about you will you then begin to respond. And so in what, the way we're going to do the outline is instead of WWJD, we're going to do WDJD. What did Jesus do? And then we're going to talk about what does Jesus do? And finally, what will Jesus do? So that's going to be our outline. And then you can all go buy uh, bracelets and make them like that. and um, It'll be wonderful. So what did Jesus do? What, let's look at the, this. This hymn is broken up pretty much in these three categories where you have the past, the present, and the future. Uh, another way to, it, it's broken up would be between two. I'm going to show my ignorance here. S-T-R-O-P-H-E. How do you say that word? Strophe? Strope? Strophe? Strophe? Strophe. That's what I thought. It's, phon- it's phonetic. Okay. Two strophes. Jesus in redemption, or excuse me, Jesus in creation, that's the first one, and then Jesus in redemption is the second one. So there's a lot of overlap, but um, we're going to look at Jesus in creation. What did he do? And of course, uh, part of that is what is true about him. The very first words, he is the image of the invisible God. Uh, we get the word icon from the word image there. And it, it simply is, it's not simple, it's profound. Uh, what's profound is Jesus is the visible God. Like, when you think about God, right, the sort of catechism says God is spirit. Jesus, who is also God, the Trinita- it's this Trinitarian stuff, right? We're getting into that, like, careful. Like, you don't want to make any mistakes when you get into the Trinity discussions, um, which is beautiful, but we don't also want to avoid it. We need to dive right in. Because here, Paul is telling us Jesus is God. He's the visible image of God. So when Jesus is walking in the cool of the day or when God is walking in the cool of the day in Genesis, that is Jesus, right? Um, God from all of time, Jesus from all of time existed and he is the image of, and, and, um, of the, an invisible God. And in Genesis 1.26, the Trinitarian head said, then God said, let us, plural, make man in our image. They didn't then say which one, it's the only image, Jesus. And so mankind is made in the image of God. All right, so that's one thing we're going to discuss, that he, uh, he is the image of God. Um, but it's more profound. I want, to, I want to actually read from John 14, where I think it just kind of, for me, has blown my mind many times. 
verse 6, Jesus says to the disciples, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Wow. And then, of course, Philip does what most of us would do. He says something really dumb. Lord, show us the Father, and that'll be enough. And Jesus says, Philip, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know? You still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Wow. And those are the moments where you realize, like, I need to be setting my mind on these truths. Like, how am I processing that, that Jesus is the visible Father? He's also uh, the firstborn of all creation. Uh, one of the um, little trivial pieces that you saw up on the board earlier, did anyone see the trivia that Doug and, and Dan have put up there? Can you put that up, Dan? We didn't discuss this, but it is part of the sermon, so I thought it'd be great. Which fourth century pastor or church father taught that Jesus Christ was the first created being, but was not the eternal and changeless creator? Anyone who can say it, look at the four options. Okay, we've whittled it down to two. Keller? C, Arius. Right, so Arius taught that there was a time where Jesus did not exist and that he was created, and that is heresy. Jesus has always existed, um, and this passage goes out of its way to say it, um, that he, he's behind all things, before all things. So the question then is, what does it mean to be the firstborn? And the answer is, uh, in the Septuagint, which is the Greek Old Testament, right? So it existed before the New Testament is in Greek, and you can match the words. The, the term for firstborn always meant the head, um, the source, the preeminent one. Um, it, it really had to do with, with, with the significant, right? Not, not talking about birth, and so what Paul is suggesting right here is he's the firstborn of all creation. And then he goes on to explain, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. What, what Paul is saying is that, that Jesus not only existed before all things, but all things are created by him and, and for him and through him. Can you wrap your mind around that? How, do you, how does that affect your mind? Uh, let me here's what I want to challenge you. Are you afraid of Jesus going into your places of, in this world? Are there places where you're thinking, I don't know that Jesus should go there? We, uh, when I was a youth leader, um, we did a skit. I'm a little embarrassed about this, but I'm going to tell you about this skit we did. Uh, I did. I want to say we because that way if there's a problem, I could say the other person. Uh, I, you, had the, you had three students had to play the, in this skit we had just come back from a camp, and what we were trying to communicate is, if you've had a mountaintop experience at camp, don't leave that behind now that you're in your normal life. That was the goal. And so the way the skit plays out is you have the student who's, uh, and then you have someone playing Jesus, forgive me, um, and then you have someone that's tempting the student. And the tempter comes in and like the bedroom door and is like, hey, want to go to the party? You know, and then the kid's like, yeah, and then of course he looks at Jesus, and Jesus is like this, the kid playing Jesus is like this, right, just standing there. And he's like, okay, and he acts like he's going to go to the party, and then Jesus follows him. And it's, it's a moving idea, like Jesus is going to go with you to this party. But you start to feel the tension in this skit, like how can you take Jesus to a party? And so, and by, by party, I'm talking like youth, drunken, party, okay. 
So the kid has to push Jesus away and then walking out again. Jesus follows him again and they go through this three times and then it ends where he pushes Jesus up against the wall and like fastens his hands to the wall to emulate the cross and it is moving, right? But it leaves Jesus like this quiet, innocent, foreign, you know, God. And I just think when you read through the the gospels, Jesus is like, let's go. Like I created parties. I created fun. I created beauty. Now, he didn't create sin, and he doesn't like sin, but I think sometimes we forget Jesus created the things in this world that you love. Like, do you know that? I mean, he, okay, you like art. Why? Whatever it is that you like about art, Jesus created beauty. Jaron Bars, uh, one of our, my professors, I always do the plural, uh, in seminary, said, there are fish in the ocean that have yet to be discovered that are gorgeous because it gives Jesus delight to have created them. So does that sink in? Jesus loves beauty. Um, Guess who made sex, right? Like if you're an alien and you visit earth, you're gonna, man, this culture is sex obsessed to the point where almost Christianity has gotten to the place where we're like, it's kind of dirty, right? And Jesus is like, I made that. And I made that fun. And I want you to enjoy it under the right circumstances, the good circumstances. But again, we, we often just, I think, deform Jesus into this little in, innocent thing, that, you know, person that we can't take in. And yet Jesus is saying, I created this earth. All things were created by me, for me, and through me. Right, and I was before all things. Is that your view of Jesus? Okay, that was my awkward part of the sermon. Past tense, sort of. What Now let's look at the present. What does Jesus do? What does is, what is this passage teach that he is doing? In verse 17, there's a transition. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. This, if, the two points I would like to make would be there's invisible aspects to what he's doing presently, and there's visible. The invisible is providence. I've talked about it before. I, I, the, the doctrine of providence is amazing to me because we talk a lot about creation, but we forget that right now he's holding everything together. You can't see it. But he, you could take the most unbelieving person ever who would have nothing to do with Jesus and their very existence, the blood coursing through their brain is Jesus giving them life. The blood's not Jesus, but he's the one giving them life, his invisible providence. And that gives me courage for people that are unbelievers, like my brother, who I'm like, well, I don't think, there's just no hope. But as long as he's living and breathing on planet Earth, Jesus is the one sustaining him, and there's hope. Right, so do you have that view that all things are held together by Jesus? That's the invisible. Um, A silly illustration would be this. Two different toys. One is a, a top. You spin a top. And then it finally starts to wobble, and then you spin. Like, is that your view of God? Like, he sort of created everything, and then he kind of backs away, and it kind of does its thing. And then every now and then, there's a, the hurricane got a little large, and so we needed to, he needs to step back in and spin it again. Or, this is, this is dumb, or a yo-yo. Why, why a yo-yo? Because <laughs> there's a string. It's always attached, right? So he's constantly attached to his creation. He's constantly overseeing it. Those two little toy illustrations will come back up in a few minutes, so hold on to those. Yay. Okay, that's the invisible attribute that Jesus is holding all things together, but he goes on to say, visibly, 
what is he doing right now? And Paul tells us he's the head of his body, the church. And that, impl- that tells us that Jesus has a preferred method of operating visibly in this world. And that's through the church, the visible church. Um, the church is how he reaches the lost. The church is how he redeems the world, both the visible and the invisible church. Now, when I say that, I'm getting confusing there. There's like churches that are visible, like Grace Presbyterian Church. And then there's the invisible church, where it's like the church universal, all Christians right now. Because see, there might be non-Christians at Grace, and there might be Christians at Grace, right? And then there might be Christians that aren't part of a visible church, but they're part of the invisible church, though we would encourage them to to go to church, but, but you have the church universal, and Jesus is using his church, but I would actually add to that his visible church primarily to do visible, tangible ministry on earth to glorify him. Uh, one of the commentators, F.F. F. Bruce, says this, so far as the organic relationship is concerned between God, excuse me, Jesus and his church, he says, Christ and his people are viewed together as a living entity. Christ is the head, supplying life and exercising control and direction. His people are his body, individually, his limbs, organs. They're all under his control, obeying his direction, performing his work. And the life which animates the whole is his risen life, which he shares with his people. So let me now bring up something that's, I think, glorious about this idea that not only is Jesus saying he's the head currently, but it does begin to hint at the mystical union we've talked about from time to time. That Jesus and the church have a union, right? You as Christians and Jesus, your head, are connected in such a way that you are a new creation and you're connected to him. And he organically works through you in addition to your actual acts of obedience. There's other ways he's working through you. And it's hard to even... um, it's hard to always pin down even your holiness and how you're carrying out that mission. Now, I want to read from a book called The Whole Christ. I've done a lot of quotes, but this is a th- brief theology of Jesus, so there's going to be quotes. This is um, Sinclair Ferguson uh, talking about the marrow of modern divinity. He says this. Um, in modern time, we, I'm going to kind of paraphrase some of it. We use the words like believer or Christian or disciple or saint He says, yet these descriptions, though they're true, are relatively rare in the the New Testament. He says, the most common one, Christian, is virtually non-existent in the New Testament, and the context in which it occurs might say it's pejorative. So when it is used, it's possibly even negative in the New Testament. Now, of course, you can use those terms, we're Christians. But he goes on to say, however, New Testament Christians do not think of themselves as Christians, but how? And he goes on to say, they, they think of themselves as being in Christ. In other words, one with Jesus, right? You're in Christ. You're united to him. And he says, this draws the obvious conclusion. If this is not the overwhelmingly dominant way in which we think about ourselves, then we are not thinking with renewed minds that the gospel gives. And in addition, without that perspective of being in Christ, will tend to separate Christ from his benefits. And I think that's a mistake we can make in the Reformed world is we talk about things like, that are beautiful, like justification, sanctification, glorification, great doctrines, critical doctrines. We talk about them as if they're here and Jesus is here. 
And what, what Sinclair Ferguson is trying to say is, no, Jesus, like you're in him. That's where your justification is. That's how sanctification operates in glorification and other doctrines. But the question is, are you in him, in Jesus? Walter Marshall says it this way. And he's talking now about holiness and growing in holiness. He says, therefore, your way to holy practice is first to conquer and expel your unbelieving thoughts by trusting confidently on Christ and persuading yourself by faith that his righteousness his spirit, glory, and all of his benefits are yours and that he dwells in you. That's our job as Christians. Our job in renewing our minds as we read these passages is to remind ourselves in every situation that we are Christ's, that he is in us, that all of his benefits are yours the moment you became a Christian. All of his benefits. Now, it works itself out over time in new ways. That's sanctification, but nonetheless, every benefit of being in Christ is yours the moment you receive him. And that's what he does. That's the present tense of what he does. Um, here's a, um, going back to the two toys, I think a lot of us um, think of our relationship with Jesus like the top. Like we go to, we have a time of prayer, top spinning, okay? We come to church, top is spinning, and then we go out there and get in our car and drive away and the radio comes on, whatever station we had it on and maybe there's an argument or whatever and the top starts to wobble, right? What are you gonna do? Well, hopefully you'll get back to another means of grace, right? Like maybe you'll get home and read a Bible verse or I mean, these are great things. But, but the problem is we think while we're not doing the means of grace, we're on our own. Like Jesus kind of ratchets us up, spins us and then we go out. But we're yo-yos, Golly, is that horrible? Is that, like you can, you can start a list of worst illustrations. But have you ever watched someone who knows how to operate a yo-yo? Like, it's not just up and down. It's like crazy tricks that I don't even know the names of because it's connected to the hand at all times. And no matter how far it gets, it's spinning, and it's as if it's one inch away. It's that tied. Jesus is constantly with you and in you. And the problem is you begin to think, no, no, I'm, I'm on my own. And he just kind of fills me and leaves me and, I, and I'm doing my own thing and that's broken, right? So what does Jesus do to, ca to capture point number two finally? Is he not only holds all things together, but he is your head and you are a part of his church. Okay. Right as I said the word head, we all looked at Keller's Mohawk, right? It's perfect. We loved it. He didn't even hear me. Okay. WW, those are the two. WD, how do I WD, someone tell me, JD. Now we're doing the third one, which is WWJD, right? But not what would Jesus do, what will Jesus do? That's our last point. I know you're excited. Um, let's look on, the, continue on our passage, verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Reconcile. Um, this presupposes something. You can't get to the second part, redemption, without a fall. So you have the first strophe is creation, right? Right? The second strophe is redemption. 
And he's now the firstborn. Before he was the firstborn of creation, right? He's always existed. Everything's by him and through him. Now he's the firstborn of the dead. He came to earth to redeem his people and to reconcile his people. Now the word reconcile uh, isn't used as much. We use it like in relationships, you know, reconcile relationships. What comes to my mind is back when I say back, you know when you used to have like checkbook things that you like filled in? Does anyone still have those? Like the pay, that you write every expense down? Mike does. We use mint, and I say like literally my wife uses mint. I don't use it as much, but I should. But what do you do? You get the bank statement, and it says you have $30. And then you look at your thing, and it says you have 300 You don't get that barter. It's like, well, let's just cut it down the middle. We each have 100 like, Let's call it 150 and be good. What do you, the banks, they're done. Like this this is it. You have this much money. Your job is to figure out how they're correct. And that's what reconciling your checkbook is. Jesus reconciled us. God is good. God is holy. We have the problem. And Jesus has come in and said, I'm going to make you fit. Like you're now redeemed. You have the blood of the cross. You have, it says in the verse 13 and 14, you've been transferred from the kingdom of his of darkness to, or the dominion of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son, redemption and forgiveness of sins. So we are now adopted and reconciled, right? But then Paul continues, and through him not only to reconcile all things, whether on earth or in heaven. What does that mean, all things? Is this universalism? Like, is every, is this, is this, you know, universalism is the teaching that says all, everybody goes to heaven, or is Paul saying he's redeeming all, not just humans, but all the earth, right? A lot of times, I know the way I grew up believing was that we would go to heaven and it'd be like fluffy clouds and we'd all get wings somehow, like little ones, and like a harp. Um, is that, you know, maybe there's a gold street, but I don't know if there's any fun shops on it. Like, you know, it's just like I'm walking down a road um, I'm not even sure that's a good material to make roads out of. Well, the New Testament teaches and the whole Bible teaches that he's actually making a new heavens and a new earth. Um, I'm going to read from Romans 8. I should have told Dan to make this slide. It's my fault. So you'll have to do the old style that we did for 14 years where you just listen. Or you can turn in your Bibles, even older. Romans 8, 9 to 23. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, and hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves we have the first fruits of the Spirit. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So what will Jesus do? I want to be clear. This is the already and the not yet. He's all, if you're a Christian, you've already been redeemed. But there is a sense in which we've not yet fully experienced that redemption. What I'm not saying is that you're not saved. Right? That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is you're saved. You have the first fruits of the Spirit but we don't have all the benefits of, of, of heaven yet. We're waiting for that. We're longing for that. And so when we study the doctrine of Christ, not only did he create all things, but he has a glory, a heaven that we long to dwell in that will 
that, that's unimaginable now. Um, the, word for pe- the word there for peace, shalom in the Hebrew, making peace by the blood of his cross. In the Old Testament, peace, shalom, meant flourishing. Listen to Isaiah 52. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness. He goes on to talk about how there will be shalom and how there will be restoration. Is that your longing? Like as you move around this world, do you see the need for shalom in your life, in your relationships, in our government, in the world? I mean, in every sphere. It's all Jesus's. And he says our job as the church is to usher in this peace because he's doing it through us. But one day, someday, he's going to return and we will be in heaven. What will that be like? I remember talking about heaven when I first started to walk with Jesus. As a Christian when I was eight, but I was like maybe at this point, 18, going to Bible study. And we just talked about heaven. And I just, we weren't right. I said this recently. We weren't correct in anything we said. But nonetheless, it felt amazing just to think about eternity. And you just, you know, you can't even... I heard, okay, I'm sorry, I'm kind of rambling. I heard a sermon by R.C. Sproul about the aseity of God, the always existence of God, right? And it just, he never gave an application. I don't even know if he illustrated it, but it just was like, just sit on that. God's always existed. Jesus has always existed. And now, also think about the fact that you will always be alive in heaven, in glory, with no pain and no tears. What, what does that do if you begin to sit on that? Does that wash over some of the current problems, the current struggles? Um, ouch. The movie Avatar. Who liked Avatar? No one, it's one of those movies you're not allowed to say you liked, but it's, it's a good movie, right? I liked it. Um, apparently, some other people really liked it. So Avatar, James Cameron, um, sci-fi flick. Uh, there's a world called Pandora, really a creative world name. And the Na'vi are the, the race that lives there. And it's like... It's, it's heaven. I mean, that's what they're trying to create in that world. And, of course, it's the humans who are ruining it and going to mine and do all this stuff. Um, but the point of the illustration is Pandora is beautiful, okay? We're good? I don't want anyone to go, well, I've never seen it, so I'm going to tune them out. So does everyone understand, because this is my final illustration, then we're leaving. Pandora is beautiful, okay? All right. Well, an article was published not long after Avatar came out. I'm going to read some of that to you. Avatar may have been a little too real for some fans who say they have experienced depression and suicidal thoughts after seeing the film because they long to enjoy the beauty of the alien world, Pandora. There's a fan site called Avatar Forums. There was one topic thread titled, Ways to Cope with the Depression of the Dream of Pandora Being Intangible. Um, one of the person, people they've interviewed or wrote in there, I can't understand why it made, or they say, I can understand why it made people depressed. The movie was so beautiful, and it shows something we don't have here on earth. I think people saw we could be living in a completely different world, and that caused them to be depressed. One writer, one person wrote in, all I've been doing of late is searching the internet for more info about Avatar. I guess that helps. It's so hard. I can't force myself to think that it's just a movie and get over it. That living like the Navi will never happen. I think I need a rebound movie. And the last guy, Mike, says, Ever since I went to see Avatar, I've been depressed. Watching the wonderful world of Pandora 
and all of the Navi made me want to be one of them. I can't stop thinking about all the things that happened in the film and all the tears and shivers I got from it. Um, is that surprising? Not at all, right? If you're a person who lives without any hope of heaven and through art, you're giving a taste of what it could look like, wouldn't, I mean, I would be depressed, right? But like Lewis says, if there's something in you that longs for a far off, far off country, maybe that just means it's real. And Jesus is real. And he's creating a new heavens and a new earth. And he's redeeming us and reconciling us. And is that your longing? So as I'm closing out, here's your application. Instead of the WWJD bracelet, this is the cheesiest thing yet. So the tops and the yo-yos, those are like third. This is number one cheesy. All the sports I watch, like the softball right now, if you watch, uh, they have that, that wrist thing with all the plays on it, right? Anyone? No? How about football? The quarterback has the thing. You can see all the... Anyone? Come on. I need, I need feedback. Thank you, Mark. You need that on your wrist. Not literally, although that'd be kind of cool. We need this rich theology on our wrist so that when the coach calls a play, Jesus, and you're in the middle of your life, you're connected, so don't, don't lose that reality. You can see the realities of Jesus and apply them in the real time, in the real moment to your daily life as you're dealing with the things that come your way. Does that make sense? So it's not what would Jesus do, it's what has he done, what is he doing, and what will he do, all wrapped up into resting in him, living for him in the moment. That was our brief theology of Jesus. In 33 minutes and 51 seconds, let's pray. Jesus, we can't even begin to cover all of the riches and the treasures of knowing you. But I do pray, Holy Spirit, that a few of these thoughts would drive home the longing to know you more. A longing for heaven and a longing for bringing that heaven to this planet, even now through this church. By loving our neighbors, by restoring relationships, by caring for our garden or uh, making good food and having meals with people. Lord, all of the ways, all the things that you have created for your glory, teach us to love and use for you and through you and by you. In your name we pray, amen.